back to Nineveh. Nineveh turns back from their sin. And God turns back from his judgment, showing his great compassion. And that brings us to Jonah chapter 4, where we see Jonah's response to God's grace, and then God's response to Jonah as well. So Jonah chapter 4. And we'll just read the last verse of Jonah chapter 3 to remind us where we are. So Jonah chapter 3, just verse 10, and then into Jonah chapter 4. When God saw what they did, that's the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could, should see what should happen or become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So far the reading of our text for this service. And in response, in connection with our text, uh, let's sing a great psalm about how God's plan, the whole time, God's plan from the very beginning of his word was always to have his people be a blessing uh, so he might save people from every tongue and tribe and nation. A theme that we see so clearly in the book of Jonah and so clearly in the psalm we're about to sing. Psalm 87, uh, stanzas 1 through 4.
So as mentioned, our text for this service is Jonah chapter 4. I don't need to read it again, but please keep it open in front of you as we work our way through this fascinating end to the story of Jonah. Brothers and sisters, once I read a book that talked about the difficult task of calling a pastor to your church. And I mentioned how pastors can have different skills and strengths and how it can be really difficult to evaluate a pastor when you're only meeting him for a really short time. And the book mentioned how you could do some things to try and figure out uh, what this pastor's skills are. You can sit down with him and you could find out maybe if he's particularly eloquent or if maybe he knows God's word extremely well or that his beliefs are all really solidly orthodox or that he has all the right answers to all of your questions. But they mentioned that there's actually one thing that is far more important, and one thing that is far more difficult to test. They suggested that maybe to do this last test, what you should do is host a big church picnic. And then, while he's at the church picnic, then invite him into a game of baseball. And then give him a really easy pitch, let him crush it, And then when he is clearly safe on third base, call him out. And that way, they said, maybe you would start to get a glimpse into the pastor's heart. It's easy to evaluate a pastor or a Christian's knowledge in some sense, but it's much more important and much more difficult to find out what lives in a Christian's heart, isn't it? That's what Jonah 4, in a sense, is really all about. It's about revealing hearts. In this story, we see the heart of a sinful prophet. And in looking at him, as we've said before, we're supposed to catch a glimpse of our sinful hearts as well. But thankfully, even more clearly, we get a glimpse in this chapter into a heart of our great God and how he deals with sinful people like Jonah, overwhelmingly sinful people like us. So first, we'll consider Jonah's angry heart. Then secondly, we'll consider God's gracious heart. So first of all, Jonah's angry heart. And when working on this sermon, I came across this marvelous story of a miraculous revival in 1857 in just a small town in the UK. You have to picture it. There were four believers who started a Bible study, and the Lord blessed their meeting, and it grew. Before long, 10 people started coming, and then 20, and then 50, and uh, within two years, they had enough people for uh, a church service, and not a small church service. Thousands of people were coming every week to hear about the Lord. And the Christians, you have to imagine how they responded to this grace and power of God. One of the preachers who joined that church said, it would have been worth living in obscurity and reproach for 10,000 years if only to be permitted to creep forward and engage in the glorious work God was doing at that time. What a privilege for those Christians. How would we react if a great revival like that happened in Chilliwack, in our city? If suddenly our churches were just flooded to overflowing with people desperate to know the Lord? And how would we react if that happened throughout Canada? I think there would be many prayers of thankfulness, right? Many tears of joy. The celebrating here would only be outdone, we have to realize, by the celebrating in heaven, as angels rejoiced at God's great power and salvation. And that sets us up for the story of Jonah. 
Because in this fascinating little book, it seems like last week or two weeks ago, rather, we had the perfect ending. God has saved Jonah. Jonah has listened. He's preached. Nineveh is saved. And the book could, maybe even we would say, the book should end right there. Maybe just one more verse in chapter 4, saying that Jonah and the Israelites join the rejoicing in heaven over the, the, the Ninevites' repentance. But instead, this week we come to chapter 4, the most disappointing, perhaps certainly the most challenging part of the book. But yet, as one commentator says, it's perhaps the most authentic part of the book when we're considering our own hearts and lives. We read in the last verse of chapter 3, when God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then we flip to the next chapter and we read, Jonah sees this amazing revival, 120,000 people brought to repentance, this miraculous transformation of many sinners by our holy God. And there we read, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Literally, this could be translated, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Jonah is furious as we read. He's angry at what God has done. More than that, he voices the anger about who God is. He admits this in his prayer in verse 2. He says, See God, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I hope these words are familiar to you. These words are precious to us. We've sung them a couple of times. We prayed them earlier. These words were precious to the Israelites as well. The words Jonah are, is referencing here are from Exodus chapter 34. There maybe you're familiar with the story. God reveals his glory to Moses after the Israelites have sinned against him with a golden calf. God lets his glory pass before Moses and he confesses who he is. He says he is a God who is gracious and compassionate, uh, uh, bounding in love and uh, steadfast mercy, but also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. It's actually the most referenced text in the Bible, used frequently to praise God for being a, good, a God who is just and yet perfectly good and forgiving. Nowhere else in Scripture, though, do we see it referenced like this. This glorious confession of the character of our God here in this passage is treated with great contempt. Jonah throws this description, God's self-description, back in his face as though it's an insult. And there are some people who are doubt whether the story of Jonah is true. They think the whole thing is just a parable. It's just satire. And when they argue that the whole thing's clearly fake, then you can imagine they point to the big fish. They say, there can't be a fish that can swallow a person and have them survive. They'll point to Nineveh's repentance. They'll say, that's not believable. They'll point to the quickly growing plant that we just read about. But also what they'll point to is Jonah himself. They'll say, this guy is unbelievable. He must be a parody. He must be made up. No one would be this hard-hearted. But it's important for us to realize, if we're going to understand this passage, that Jonah is not unbelievable. He's authentic. He's realistic. And as we look closely at him, we'll start to see, though we desperately wish we could say we don't know this man, actually we can see that we do know the man. That he's a lot like you and like me. We're looking at a pretty clear picture 
of someone a lot like us. And so we need to consider, why is Jonah this angry? Why is he this upset? Well, we can list a whole number of reasons. Just think about it. As we heard uh, in the first chapter of Jonah, Jonah despises the Ninevites. They are a city, a nation of terrorists who have harmed their people Israel. And God just, it seems, left them unpunished for their crimes. Secondly, Jonah is an Israelite. He knows there are other prophets who are predicting disaster for Israel when they don't repent. And perhaps he knows it will be at the hands of these people, the Assyrians. God will punish his own people. We also need to remember Jonah is an Israelite prophet. So when he does this, when this happens, he likely feels like his life is over. Jonah now needs to go back home. He needs to go back to Israel and face his people. And he will live the rest of his life as the prophet that God used to deliver Israel's enemies. His life, he probably feels like, is ruined. His reputation is in the mud. What's he going to do now? On top of that, Jonah is likely simply exhausted. He's fled from his home. He was caught in a storm and thrown into the sea, swallowed by a fish. He he trekked likely on foot a month to Nineveh and preached around the city. He's likely exhausted. Teachers can tell you teaching and preaching is exhausting. And more than that, this isn't just physical exhaustion here. He's likely dealing with spiritual exhaustion. Maybe if you're familiar with the Bible, you know the story of Elijah. Uh, Elijah was dealing with rival priests. And he had a great conflict with them. And, Joe, and uh, Elijah, rather, came out victorious. And afterwards, he goes into the, uh, into the wilderness, and he's exhausted. He's depressed. He feels like he's the only one left. He, he just wants to die. Less well-known are the words of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 20. After years of preaching, Jeremiah too asked the Lord if he can stop. He, he wants to give up. The devil attacks these preachers, these prophets' heart. And after decades of having a stronghold in Nineveh, surely Satan himself is attacking Jonah, furious at the repentance. And so Jonah sees what he dreaded all along, and he absolutely loses his cool. And commentators try and spend a lot of time trying to nail down exactly why he was angry, but I I don't think that's exactly necessary. I wonder what you think. Just think for a second of the last time that you got really upset. Last time, you got really angry. You were really tired or really disappointed. And someone, imagine they came up to you and they asked you, okay, why exactly are you so upset? Why, why are you acting exactly in this way? Do you think you would be able to explain to them? Do you think you'd be able to calmly, rationally say, this is exactly why I'm doing exactly this at exactly this time? Or maybe have you just lost it a little bit? And you don't want to explain. Maybe you can't explain. You know you're wrong. You're just upset. I think that's what Jonah has in the story. And I think we have a hint of it in verses 4 and 5. Because as Jonah is completely losing his mind, God comes to him right away and asks, like a patient friend, he asks, do you do well to be angry? And what does Jonah say? Well, in the first place, in verses 4 and 5, he says nothing. He just ignores him. He just walks away. And again, I want to ask you, does this seem completely satirical? This seems crazy? Or does this seem kind of realistic? There are many reasons for Jonah's response, I'm sure. But there is one main 
underlying reason that we can identify, one terrifying reason. But first, we need to, a little bit, be able to see ourselves in Jonah and see he's not out to lunch here. We could see that we could be in a similar kind of situation. But there is one main terrifying reason why Jonah responds with such anger and Nineveh's repentance. And that's because for many years, externally, Jonah had been living near the Lord. He had grown up in Israel. He had learned God's word very well. We saw that in Jonah chapter 2 in Jonah's prayer. He trained and worked as a prophet. He had experienced God's grace and blessing. The Lord worked powerfully through Jonah in Israel and now powerfully through Jonah in Nineveh. And if anyone saw Jonah from the outside, what do you think people would say? They would say, here is a great man of God. Here is someone who knows the Lord, who loves the Lord, who walks with the Lord. And yet the scary thing is, while Jonah on the outside seems externally incredibly close to the Lord in his walk and in his words, internally, Jonah's heart was far from God. And brothers and sisters, we shouldn't dare to laugh at this. But we should be disturbed and we should be warned by this. Because many of us here as well, we have grown up near to the Lord, haven't we? We go to the right places, we, we say the right things when asked the right questions. It's easy to test the knowledge of a believer. It's easy for us to say the right things at the right times. All this time with God, and yet this stressful situation is the boiling point. And it shows what's really in Jonah's heart and shows that it is far from him. For years and years, gladly Jonah had confessed that his God is a great God, that he's compassionate and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But here his heart pours out. He doesn't love the Lord. He doesn't trust him. All this time he had been near to his God. He had been confessing with his lips his faith. But was his heart near to his God? Not at all. His heart was still hardened in sin. I once heard a great example of how couples and families and friends, as they, they grow up together, they often over time start to resemble one another, don't they? You can look at somebody, maybe someone you've never met before, and you can be like, you must be from that family. You recognize some of their mannerisms, some of the way that they, they talk, and you, you see they spend so much time together, they start to look like one another. And I once heard this great example of uh, this pastor. And this pastor, he struggled with same-sex attraction. And that led to a number of challenges for him, uh, of course. But one of the biggest challenges, he said, was one that you might not expect. He said one of the biggest challenges was coming to terms with the fact that he had never had little kids of his own. Little kids that he would get to see grow up and just learn from him and, and start to look like him. But one day, an old friend called this pastor up and he said to him, I met a number of pastors that you mentored, pastors that you trained, and they really love you and respect you. They told me all these great things about how God is using you. And as they spoke, eventually this pastor asked, how did you know that those guys were mentored by me? And his friend answered him, it was easy. They're just like you. They, they talk just like you. They love the Lord just like you. They love their people and the church just like you. They resemble you. And brothers and sisters, we have to wonder why Jonah, after all these years on the other hand, he spent so much time with his God. He spent so much time with the prophets of God. He himself is a prophet. He should be leading others to God. And yet Jonah shows here 
His heart still looks nothing like his God. He doesn't value what his God values. He doesn't care about what his God cares about. If you ask him to describe God, he can do it using scripture. But the scary thing is at this point, the knowledge doesn't help him. In fact, the knowledge condemns him. Notice that no one else in this story knows God. The sailors in the storm in chapter 1, they say, perhaps, perhaps God will give a thought to us and we will not perish. We saw two weeks ago, the, the Ninevites says, say, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. And yet Jonah is the one when he sees God's mercy. Jonah is the first one who knows. Look at his words in our text. He says to God, I knew it, Lord. I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. This knowledge didn't save him. Truly, anyone who has this kind of knowledge, Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn this, them. This isn't a saving knowledge of God. It's a devilish knowledge of God. The demons, too, they know God's nature, and they hate it. In this case, Jonah criticizes God for his grace. And that Jonah opposes God's compassion and patience is just baffling. Because if you think through this book, who of the people, which character, has received by far the most patience from God? Who in this book has received by far the most compassion and grace? Without a doubt, the one who has had, the God has had the longest fuse for seems to be Jonah himself. Yet Jonah has spent all this time near to the Lord, learning about the Lord. He's not amazed by the Lord. He doesn't fall down on his knees and worship the Lord. Instead, he sees the Lord act fully out of his character, and he's furious at the Lord, who is slow to get angry. And this is a strong warning for us. People who come week in, week out, who study the Word, who read all about Jesus Christ, we can come to know a lot of knowledge about Jesus Christ. It's so easy for us to stop being amazed by Jesus Christ. By wanting nothing more to be, than to be close to Jesus Christ. Wanting nothing more to give our lives to Jesus Christ and begin to look like Jesus Christ. And it seems like that's what Jonah had. He grew up as a person of God, near to his God. He didn't love his God. He wasn't being transformed into the image of his God. He just knew some stuff about his God. As we read this story, it's easy for us to begin to hate Jonah, to hate his anger and his hatred and his hard heart, and it's easy for us to begin to laugh at him. He looks like such a child. We get disgusted by him, this wretched man. And in a sense, that's kind of the point. But as we're disgusted by him, we need to realize often we're looking in a mirror. In many ways, this is us. Each and every day, we are just like Jonah. We are the ones who, above anything, should love God's compassion and should show God's compassion to others because we know how much compassion he's had on us. But so often, we take it for granted. Instead, we've spent so much time with God. He's been so kind and good and gracious. And yet, does that kindness and goodness and graciousness flow out to others, to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors? Or so often does it stop with us, and we're quite happy if it just stops with us. Times can get hard, and things can not go our way, and that when, then we get tired, or hot, or upset. 
And that's when so often we show our reluctance to give others compassion, or our reluctance to forgive others. And that's when we show that we know a lot about our God. We spend a lot of time with him, but he doesn't fully have our hearts, not yet. We can remember what we said a few weeks ago, uh, the first week in Jonah. The book isn't primarily about Jonah or about you or me. Thank God for that. It is a mirror, and we're supposed to see our hearts in Jonah. But as we look in this mirror, don't focus on Jonah or on yourselves. But pay attention. Take a glance at the God who is watching over Jonah, who is dealing with Jonah, and see how he deals with people like Jonah and people like us. There you'll see God's gracious heart. That's our second and our final point. So once again, the book, it seems like, should just be over. Because God has saved the sailors and the Ninevites and Jonah. And yet now Jonah, finally, he turns and he attacks God. He throws his character in his face. Can you imagine someone that you have been kind to and gracious to and cared for, shouting at you in a rage for your grace? It seems like it's time for God to stop the experiment. To, to, to pull the plug on Jonah. Let him go. But God shows he is truly slow to anger. He lets Jonah walk away unharmed, ignoring his question. And God works gently yet again to bring him back. What a, a patient and gracious God we serve. So Jonah, he goes and he sits on a mountain east of this town. He, he bids, builds a booth there to try and get some shade from the hot sun. But apparently his booth-making skills, uh, they're subpar. Uh, because he's still getting way too hot. He's still very uncomfortable. He's boiling. And remember, Jonah didn't have to be there. He's, it's, he's uncomfortable by his own choice. But he wants to see if maybe Nineveh will be destroyed. So God appoints a plant to give Jonah shade. And we read in verse 6, if you look there, that God made the plant to save him from his discomfort. But we need to realize in the Hebrew, there's a, a play on words there. Because you can tell from the rest of the story is God primarily concerned with Jonah's physical discomfort? Not at all. He, he takes away the plant almost immediately. The, the phrase could also be translated that God's effort here is to save Jonah from his evil. Just as God had saved the Ninevites from their evil, now he's working to save his prophet from his evil. So God gives him a plant and Jonah, Jonah loves the plant. He's joyful because of the plant, maybe too joyful because of the relief it brings. But God sends a worm, appoints a worm to attack it or to destroy it. Then he makes the sun beat down or attack Jonah. It's the same word in the Hebrew. He also sends a dreaded east wind that comes from over the desert, excruciatingly hot. And then Jonah again says in his anger, it is better for me to die than to live. And so having prepared him for his question, God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And so the Lord says in response, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? 
What abiding question from the Lord. Jonah, in just a day, you set your love upon this plant. You cared for it. You wanted to die over it. Am I wrong, God asks, to care for these 120,000 immortal souls in Nineveh? The Lord has been watching over this city for generations, knitting their children together in their mother's wombs. Even the animals are his. He knows them all. And so God asks, who's wrong, Jonah? Are you wrong or am I? And there the story ends. Seems like we're missing a page or something, but we're not. This is an intentional ending. I love how Sinclair Ferguson says it. The story ends on a cliffhanger because it ends with an arrow. But by not turning back to Jonah, the arrow turns away from Jonah and points at each and every one of us. This question truly condemns us, doesn't it? This great city, God calls it many times throughout this book of Nineveh, it has 120,000 people. I was struck while I studied this. That's not too different from Chilliwack, is it? It's pretty close. Jonah doesn't care about these people. What he loves is the plant. Because he loves himself, his own comfort. The plant makes him feel good, so he can care about the plant. He doesn't realize, though, the value of a human soul. And the question, brothers and sisters, is how about us? Sinclair Ferguson says, this is a devastating critique of Jonah's spiritual condition, but it raises an issue no less disturbing about our own lives as Christians. Could the same be said about us? Do we care more about the items in our gardens, in our fields, in our garage, or in our home than we do about our fellow men and women and the spread of the gospel? Do we care more in the last analysis about our own temporary comforts and plans than about the evangelism of the world? The statistics of our giving, of our praying, of our going out in the cause of Christ throughout the earth provide a embarrassing reading, he says. Jonah did not properly value the Ninevites' lives. And tragically, it also seems uh, that he didn't even properly value his own life. Seeing his enemies saved, his people endangered, his reputation back home likely ruined, he thinks he might as well die too. The text says literally in the Hebrew, Jonah asked his soul to die. But praise God that he thinks different, doesn't he? Because there's a great deal of hope here. God values the Ninevites' lives, of course, but not just theirs. God also values Jonah's life. Look how much care and attention the Lord has put into reclaiming Jonah for himself all book long. Often we can think that the Lord just wants our service. He just wants our work, just wants our energy. And people can get bitter. God just wants my time and God wants my money. He wants to drain things, take things from me. He doesn't care. But the message of Jonah is God does care. God doesn't just want Jonah's service, does he? He got Jonah's service. Is he done? No. What God wanted was Jonah's heart. He wants Jonah. Not just his words, not just his works. Jonah himself. What's the value of a human soul? Often we don't know. But our God does know. And we need to ask the question, how much was God willing to pay for your soul and for mine, for sinful people like Jonah? 
God values your soul and my soul so highly that he sent his own son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And this Savior, he was nothing like us. But he came to work to make people like Jonah and like us, just like him. And just picture here the contrast between Jonah and Jesus Christ, our true prophet and Savior. Jonah here is so angry that he thinks he wants to die. Jesus Christ, we will read in the future. He he comes and he became sorrowful unto death and actually laid down his life for people like us. Jonah stands by crying out for judgment over Nineveh. Jesus stood by Jerusalem weeping, we heard a few weeks ago, that these hardened sinners who knew so much about God were nothing like him and would not repent and turn back to him. Jonah is angrily here on a hill outside the city, oppressed by the burning heat of God's discipline, desperate to see his enemies punished. Jesus Christ was raised up on a hill outside the city, oppressed by the burning heat of God's wrath against your sins and mine, so that we, his enemies by nature, might never face God's judgment. Jonah himself, he did not care that the Ninevites were blinded by their sin. As God so graciously says, they're guilty, yes, but they don't know their right hand from their left. But Jonah doesn't care. He has no compassion. He wants them to pay. But the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ, as he was stripped and as he was beaten, as sinful people drove nails through his hands and his feet and hung him in the heat of the day to die, as he was being murdered, he didn't think about his comfort. Instead, he thought of his killers. He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And this greater Jonah, the one who is compassionate in his heart, who is gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, he calls us to come to him. Come to him not to serve him, not just to obey him externally, but come to him for new hearts, for new lives, for transformation, to go back to our God, to be recreated in his image once again. We look to Jesus Christ, and there we see the sickness of our hearts, that we're nothing like Jesus, and that it took his death to wash us clean once and for all. And we look to this Jesus, and there we see the heart of our God, and we see the value of our souls in his sight, and we are amazed. It's not just a God that we learn some facts about, that we come and begrudgingly hear about on Sundays. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we love, that we devote our lives to today and every single day. And so God asks Jonah, Jonah, am I wrong to value these people so highly? Or are you wrong to value them so little? And brothers and sisters, this is a great reminder for each and every one of us. It's very easy to apply this to, to valuing souls outside of the church, but we should value souls inside the church as well, shouldn't we? Paul, in his last visit to the elders of the church of Ephesus, he says to the elders especially, but words that should resonate with with us all. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. Brothers and sisters, look around the room and realize Christ really values the souls in this room. Do you and I really value the souls in this room? 
Do we love one another? Do we want to give our lives to serving one another? To seeing one another built up in Christ? To seeing others come in as well and get to know this awesome God and Savior? Brothers and sisters, that is how the book ends. It ends on this cliffhanger. Because Jonah isn't just supposed to answer this question, but each and every one of us are supposed to answer this question. And I can't tell you exactly how Jonah responded. Honestly, we just don't know for sure. But we do have one hint, and I'll end with this. Just think to yourself for a second. Who do you think it was that told this story? Who do you think is the one who wrote the book? Who recorded Jonah's prayer from the belly of a fish? Who laid bare Jonah's sinful heart? Who shared this story of his private conversation with God outside of Nineveh? Technically, the book is anonymous. We don't know for sure. But traditionally, it's only been attributed to one author, to Jonah himself. Many commentators still agree he likely was the author. So who would write a book like this about himself, about his own life, showing his ignorance, showing his hatred, showing the depths of the bitterness of his heart, except for someone who wanted to give their testimony, showing how he came to know and believe in and truly love and appreciate his God, who is so compassionate and gracious, so slow to anger, so abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Brothers and sisters, it's easy to evaluate our knowledge. It's much harder to evaluate a heart. But if a man gives a testimony anything like this, well, then that is a pretty good glimpse into his heart. Amen.